This is Winter Is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm joined today by RDI board member, Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman, for his second appearance on this podcast. As a quick refresher, Alex was most recently the director for Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Russia on the White House National Security Council. During this assignment, he blew the whistle on Trump's attempt to blackmail Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, which led to the first impeachment hearing. His book is Here, Right Matters. Welcome, Alex. Hey, thanks, Cyril. So why don't we start by kind of looking at a little bit of a thread through your own personal experience, some recent American political history, as well as what's going on in the world. I asked this question to Bill Crystal when he was on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, but I think it would be really interesting to get your perspective as well. What do you see as the connection, if there exists one, between what's going on in Ukraine, Trump's first impeachment, and the January 6th hearings of today? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, I guess I would start with like a single word. I think a common thread through all this is corruption whether that's the corruption and rot of the Russian system as organized and led by Vladimir Putin for 22 years or corruption within the American political system. And corruption breeds instability, crisis, rot. We've known about Russian corruption for a long time. It's going to kind of been a steady slide, increasingly precipitous towards something that really jeopardizes and perils U.S. national security interests, U.S.-led international system kind of rules-based order. But we see some of this also occurring in the U.S. where the corruption of Trump as early as the Ukraine scandal in 2019 set the conditions for Russia to perceive an opportunity to strike out, to attack a peaceful neighbor. And we should see that as a kind of a continuous thread from that scandal all the way through the war starting. And frankly, even Putin to this day believing that the longer he sits on this war, the longer this war goes, the greater the chance of being able to, to win the war or exit this war with some sort of win, which would be the West somehow fracturing over views on what to do about Ukraine, how long to keep up the fight and support Ukraine's uh, resistance to Russian aggression. And that certainly carries through before this war in inspiring Putin to believe that this is the time to strike out. But even afterwards, you know, the rhetoric from Trump and from the right wing, including folks like Tucker Carlson, is why are we in this war? We have problems at home. Instead of recognizing the fact that this is a bigger crisis, something that will shape the direction of the 21st century and, you know, the system in which the U.S. is likely to operate, whether that's rules-based system or in crisis fending off authoritarian regimes. So that's a really interesting point that I actually hadn't thought of before. The fact that you get this sort of Russia-sympathetic point of view on the Trump right might actually be leading Putin to continue the war longer than he might otherwise do, right? Because there's this underlying belief that, okay, if I can just hang on until after the midterms, right? If Republicans gain control of Congress, then I'll be operating in a more favorable environment 
Do you think there's truth to that? Do you actually see this influencing the Russian military calculus? I think it's more important than military calculus. The military is kind of hanging on. It's the political calculus that it's influencing. It's the same. There's some wishful thinking, frankly. It's the same kind of wishful thinking that the West would be fractured and lack resolve to stand up to Russian aggression. Obviously, that's backfired in some enormous ways with a democratic world reuniting Finland, Sweden entering the NATO alliance. But there is some wishful thinking, and I think it's grounded on the basis that the Republicans have cheerled for Putin. The Republicans, not all of them, but certainly the Trump catering faction, because Trump favors Putin over democracy, believe that in order to stay in his good graces, they need to kind of deliver for him. And I think part of that would be pivoting away from support to Ukraine to a more neutral position with regards to Russia. Putin perceives this. I think he's frankly wrong. My view is that the American public has turned hard away from Russia towards Ukraine. There's a sliver of far-right kind of MAGA support for Russia, but the vast majority of the population is supportive of Ukraine, understands that the challenge is kind of, there's a, a direct tie into U.S., to the American population's kind of affinity for freedom fighting and so forth. And it's not going to be that simple. But I think the point is that Putin does perceive opportunities here. And I think that's, to me, that's pretty clear that, you know, he's looking to wait us out. The far left and the far right, I'd probably add, right? I mean, because I think it's hard to define Glenn Greenwald and Tulsi Gabbard as being members of the far right. I think that's true. You know, the horseshoe theory applies here. But I think that, you know, in this context on Ukraine, that's true. But I tend to not like to, to conflate the far right and the far left. There's only one kind of immediate, uh, clear and present danger. Mm. And that emerges from the right because of the fact that it's captured such a large swath of the population. The far left still seems, you know, kind of a remote, distant danger. It shouldn't be dismissed, but it's just, you know, uh, I guess that's the way I, I see the priorities. I think that makes sense. I think one can have a pretty nuanced view there where, you know, there are these competing threats, but one is more immediate than the other. Yeah, I guess I'll mention, you know, just to close this point out, we either overassess American power and it plays out in, in American hubris that we could do whatever we want, or sometimes we underassess the impact of our politics, the impact of our leadership on the world stage. And in the case mm. of, I think, Ukraine, we probably underassess the role the U.S. played in Putin's kind of formulation to pursue this war. I think we presented the opportunity. I think our internal domestic politics, I think, you know, the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the right catering to Trump and therefore to Putin presented an opportunity. And we shouldn't underestimate how important these things were when decision makers around the world look at uh, vulnerabilities and how to act. So I have to ask the devil's advocate question, right? Which is, why did Putin invade Ukraine when Joe Biden is president of the U.S., but not when Donald Trump was president of the U.S.? I think Putin was hoping is not probably the right word, but Putin was desirous of a second Trump term, right? In a second Trump term, you have a, a candidate that's no longer constrained. There are no adults in the room. There is not a Jim Mattis you know, that understands the threats of Russia to U.S. national security and the rules-based international order. All you have is a Trump unconstrained and with henchmen that are prepared to do his bidding. And in that scenario, 
the things that he's most interested in doing, one of his kind of key policy directions was to retrench, withdraw from NATO. So optimal scenario is a second Trump administration where the U.S. does withdraw from NATO, reduces force posture in Europe even further, and then it's a cakewalk and a conflict around Ukraine because then there's no U.S. leadership, no kind of U.S. backbone to it. That's one of the things. And then there's a purely kind of practical military requirements, which is you don't conduct a large-scale invasion for Russia on a dime. It takes months and months to execute that. Even if you're not going to inform your troops about it, you still need to preposition <laughs> your resources. And we have to remember that this war, you know, the sustainment and support for this war started back in March of last year, in 2021. And it just took that long to build up the forces required. I think after January 6th, Putin said, give me options to conduct an offensive and seize Ukraine. And it took the military many months to posture him to exercise that option. He probably didn't make that call until, it looks like he didn't make that call until November, December, maybe January of 2022. But it takes months to get there. And we shouldn't forget that right. all this kind of unfolded almost immediately after January 6th. So then in some ways, it sounds like basically during Trump's first term, Putin was kind of hoping for a second term during which, you know, conditions would be the most right for a Russian assault. And then when it became clear that that second term wasn't going to happen, it just took time for him to pull together what he needed to pull together. Yeah, I think it took time. But look, the key part of this, that's kind of an operational consideration. It takes time to build up forces. But the strategic consideration is that the U.S. looked weak, vulnerable, distracted after attack on the Capitol. You know, these like far-fetched notions of a fractured U.S., weakened U.S., those looked manifest after January 6th. And Trump didn't just leave the stage, he was still rabble-rousing, creating a huge amount of chaos all the way through the subsequent months. So I think that's the opportunity that Putin was acting off of. There are, of course, other factors, but I think that one was a milestone. Right. And ultimately, I mean, I think at the end of the day, we don't know what's going on in Putin's head, right? I mean, I get asked a lot as to why this dissident was arrested in Russia, but not that dissident. And the answer is we sometimes just don't know. But I think it's pretty safe to say that Putin was not expecting an invasion to be easier under Joe Biden than it would have been under Donald Trump. But anyway, before we dive more deeply into the situation in Ukraine, I actually want to get your take on what's happening right now, because I think your perspective here might actually be one of the single most relevant perspectives that we could get from almost anyone, you know, which is that last week we had these bombshell hearings from Cassidy Hutchinson who I believe was 26 when she took the stand, 25 when some of the events occurred. And you have this young woman who braved the eyes of the entire country, who presumably had to go through an incredible array of threats, and whom we now know there was an attempt to dissuade, you know, by members of the Trump camp, you know, which one could argue it would be a form of witness tampering. Now, all of this was something that you experienced when you decided essentially to leave the safety of sort of anonymity within sort of the civil administration and thrust yourself and your family into the limelight by agreeing to testify. But well, by first, by bringing to light what happened during that phone call and then by choosing to testify. So I wonder if you could kind of enlighten us a little bit, you know, tell us 
what goes on in your head? What do you think is going on in, in Cassidy's head? What leads someone to make that decision? And then how do you deal with just the unbelievable influx of attention that occurs when you actually make that decision and go public? So I'll tell you, I frankly think that Cassidy Hutchinson took a far more courageous position and it took a lot more fortitude in her case than I think even in my case. You know, I come from an apolitical background, so I was not affiliated with one party or another. Her home was the Republican Party. All her network of connections with the Republican Party. You know, I was in my mid-40s and I had a full career behind me. I would have to start something new. But she's 25, 26. She hasn't even started a career. I mean, she's just starting a career. She has her whole life in front of her and everything has kind of been turned upside down. And I had a career of public service and frankly, a practice of not walking by mistakes, attempting to do the right thing, making on the spot corrections when I needed to. I had a, like kind of a wealth of military training and experience. I had the challenges of you know serving in combat the perspective of serving in Ukraine uh, and Russia, in Russia under the watchful eye of like, you know, security services. I was trained as an attache to, you know, everything from surveillance detection to kind of like resisting interrogation techniques. So I had a lot of tools in my toolkit to deal with this. And frankly, I could shrug off a fair bit of the stuff and just be laser focused on the testimony. She didn't have that. She just had some deep internal strength and, you know, kind of a, a sense of justice about the right thing to do. I remember kind of her glancing around the room as she's getting ready to testify, being quite nervous, and then really settling into the testimony and just, you know, speaking the truth, telling facts. And that's something that felt really close to home because I felt the same way. I, I recognized I'd be the object of controversy, of attention, but I didn't let any of that kind of distract me from testifying and giving witness to Trump's corruption in, in Congress. And she did great. I admire her ability to kind of focus under all those conditions. So that's kind of the personal level. In terms of you know what the Trump administration does, this is what they do. I mean, it's kind of like a mafia organization attempting to keep people in line. This is a commonly used metaphor. We shouldn't kind of glance over it. But this is the way they intimidate folks on a regular basis. And uh, she withstood that. You know, this 25, 26-year-old young woman withstood that when all of these more senior men that have, like, resources uh, buckled and continue to buckle. And I think on that basis, you could criticize her, I guess, if you want to, that it took this long for her to be public. I don't know if I would necessarily couch it that way. I kept my cards close to the breast before I testified. Nobody knew what I was going to say what I was going to do, except my attorneys and my family. And she gave her you know, testimony to Congress probably some quite a few months ago and has now just try to keep her head down before giving the public testimony. So I hope we could move past this and we don't have to have an administration that looks to vandalize people's lives and retaliate and intimidate. And that's one of the reasons, frankly, I've chosen to sue elements of the Trump administration to hold folks accountable, brush back this kind of you know, nefarious, evildoer activity against public servants. Have there been any updates on that lawsuit? What I could say is it's kind of the normal response to the claims and so forth, and it's working its way through the courts. So 
The last question on this topic, you pointed out that here you have this young woman who essentially had the bravery that so many people who are way more senior than her, way more experienced, didn't have, right? Either the bravery or the clarity of thought, of vision, whatever it is, right, that led her to speak out when so many others stayed silent in the same way that, you know, you were not the only one on that phone call. There were a number of other people on that call, a number of them more senior than you, none of whom chose to take the risk and speak out. And so I wonder, number one, what do you think distinguishes those who speak out from those who don't? And number two, is there anything that we as the public or, you know, in government or through policy or reform or whatever, is there anything that can be done to encourage that kind of bravery and try to make it more likely that more people would find it within themselves to do what you and Cassidy did? I'd say there are two kind of different things. One big picture, one more narrow and technical. Whistleblower protections. We probably should relook, and this I've signed up onto a couple of petitions to get Congress to relook whistleblower protections and get them to offer the kinds of protections required to allow people to be confident that they, you know, will pass through one of these times of turmoil somewhat whole. That doesn't happen, by the way. On the big stage, it just doesn't happen that you'll leave whole. I'm still dealing with the consequences of the testimony. I, I'm pretty well postured. I get to help defend democracy with RDI. I get to use my voice in a constructive way to uphold values and advocate for values-based leadership and advocate for candidates that will defend the Constitution, not attempt to undermine elections and things of that nature. I get to work on a doctorate at Johns Hopkins. I get to do some interesting things, but I haven't quite figured out what I want to do longer. That predictability and stability is gone. That world's gone. So whistleblower protections would be good. The other thing is we absolutely must demand as a citizenry accountability. So we should always look for the opportunity to hold power to account. That's the only real check on the system. And I think that's what, frankly, the January 6th committee is all about is holding Trump and those corrupt actors that tried to steal our democracy to account. The minimum floor for our elected officials is that they live up to their oaths of office. Too often we kind of look the other way and say, well, that's just the way the politics are played. That that shouldn't be the case. They should be held to a higher bar, not a lower bar than the average citizen. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I've lost count of the number of times I've heard someone say about Donald Trump or about any other politician. Oh, well, you know, it's fine that they do X, Y, or Z thing because everyone else does the same thing. I mean, incidentally, that's literally the tactic that Putin, Xi Jinping, you know, other dictators and wannabe authoritarians use as well. They don't actually necessarily even try to defend their own actions. Instead, what they do is they say, well, America's no better, right? Europe is no better. They are equally guilty. In other words, it's not that we are innocent. You know, we may not be. I mean, at a certain point, the contradictions in Russian propaganda about its own actions are so evident and so obvious that there's no real way to defend them. And so instead, what they do is they try to engage in whataboutism. They try to distract and they try to muddy the waters and basically say, fine, you know, we're not innocent, but nobody is. And it reminds me of the quote that Donald Trump gave in the interview, you know, when asked about Putin interfering in our elections, you know, Trump's immediate reaction was, well, you know, are we so innocent? 
And that's a tactic they all use. And in fact, one of our RDI Freedom Fellows and now our Director of Education, Ivan Mowadire, made this point in his Washington Post piece where he called for people to pay attention to the January 6th hearings because those hearings are exactly the kind of accountability measure that countries like his home countries of Zimbabwe don't have, right? They, they have no mechanism for holding those folks accountable. We're going to talk about Ukraine, but I guess this is one of the reasons why, you know, I kind of have a immediate visceral reaction to kind of equivalencies or false equivalencies comparing the left and the right. I think in this moment is a challenge. The far left is a problem primarily because it's also divisive. But the clear and present danger to our democracy emanates from the right. So that's why I kind of feel like I need to take the moment to address that point. So with that transition, let's move on to the situation in Ukraine. In the last few episodes of the podcast, we've kind of focused on the broad political discussion, the broad geopolitical discourse. So, you know, I wonder if we can kind of go back to basics for a moment. Alex, could you give us an update? on what's going on in Ukraine right now and an update on the Western military aid that has either been promised and or has already been delivered. Sure. So I'm guessing that at this point, it's been pretty well covered. Finland and Sweden joining NATO is a important sea change. You know, we talk about net security consumers and net security providers. Finland and Sweden are powerful countries with a powerful defense sector, and they're going to be huge net security providers. That has been a big change. This NATO summit that occurred quite recently is pretty important, too, from a posture perspective, from the commitments the U.S. is making to the region, including in important areas like air power. And these are long-term, enduring commitments. These are not going to be tied to the end of the crisis in Ukraine. This is the way posture is going to look for a decade or longer. So those are pretty important from a geopolitical standpoint. With regards to Ukraine internal, at this point, there is a expansion of capabilities. There is still not the kind of volume of systems that's required for Ukraine to really kind of turn the corner. It's still shaping up to be a grinding war of attrition between Russian forces and Ukrainian forces, Russian forces taking frankly, higher casualties and taking more damage than the Ukrainians, but the Ukrainians taking also punishing losses, including losing terrain, losing some kind of smaller cities in the Far East where Russia has concentrated all of its resources on this like 50, 100 kilometer front, all of its artillery, all its capable troops, all of its air power. Those are gains that Russia made at a high cost, at a punishing cost to Ukraine, but unsustainable. At the same time, there's an expansion of capabilities. These HIMARS systems, even though there's only been four of them, there needs to be you know, multiples of that. There needs to be you know, 40 of them would make a difference. But four of them have been important because they've been able to reach out and touch the rare areas of Russian forces, all those depots, ammunition depots, supply depots, and start to disrupt Russia's ability to sustain a war. And we tend to focus on the kind of the combat power, the armor, the infantry. But without the bullets and fuel and food, those folks, they can't continue to fight. So that's why these systems are so important. They could reach deep behind Russian lines. The Ukrainians have excellent intelligence. They know where the stuff is and they could target it. 
And now with these NASAM systems, these air defense, medium, long-range air defense systems, that's going to be critical. There's only three of them coming in. They can't cover that much space. But it'll reduce Russia's ability to be able to strike Ukrainian targets with these precision-guided you know, caliber or, or other precision long-range systems. So those types of things are important. Last, I'll mention, Russia's making gains in the east, losing ground in the south. I think if you look at the, you know, the territorial shifts, I'd probably say it's about even. And this is all of Russia has managed to do, you know, in the eight or nine weeks since they shifted to this much, much more narrow and focused area. So it's not much of a win. It's a tactical, maybe at best an operational victory for Russia in the east and some losses in the south. So whose side is time on here, right? So basically, you know, we've been hearing in the news that, you know, Russia has obviously taken Severodonetsk. You know, as you pointed out, it's made other gains in the east while Ukraine has made gains in the south. And I've heard these conflicting points of view where on the one hand, obviously there will be more Western weapons, more Ukrainians trained to properly use them as time goes on. And, you know, that to some extent would be the argument for why time is on the side of the Ukrainians. But there's also a flip side of that argument, which is that Western unity is likely not permanent. And therefore, you know, the longer Russia can grind on this conflict, the more, you know, we can likely expect there to be cracks in the Western alliance. Where do you fall on this? What's the role that time plays in the conflict? So there's a military perspective, and then there's the, the more important political perspective. Absent a mobilization, a general mobilization, which Russia is reluctant and unlikely to do, time is on Ukraine's side. Russia is burning through its forces, its kind of capable personnel. It's, it's doing a, uh, a covert mobilization of sorts, bringing in less ready troops on less capable of equipment to try to continue to conduct these offensives. You know, at this point, I'm maybe slightly less certain than I was before, but I would say that I don't think Russia is going to be able to sustain these kinds of operations for much longer. They won't be able to sustain them to, let's say, capture this other area of Donetsk. They captured Luhansk. Donetsk is a much, much bigger territory, but I think there's a chance that if the Ukrainians are not kind of agile and learning, which they are, the Russians could potentially continue to make this kind of gain. But they're taking heavy losses. So on a, from a military perspective, I'd say that time is on the Ukrainian side. The Russians are going to shift to a defensive posture, and the Ukrainians will then be able to choose where to fight. The Ukrainians will have this initiative, and they pick where to conduct their offensive. And that gives them a lot of, frankly, a lot of flexibility. So that's from a military perspective. And it's going to probably get a little bit easier as more of the Western equipment comes online. From a political perspective, if you believe in the theory that, you know, the Western resolve will, will kind of weaken and shift, then time might be on Russia's side. I'm not sure if I take that. I don't know if I take it for granted that even if the Republicans take the House, that they're going to kind of pivot hard away from support to Ukraine. I think it'll be a much more deliberate process or something of that nature. I'd say that's through the rest of this year. You know, if this war somehow lasts a year or two, then that's going to be hard to potentially maintain that current resolve. But I think for the rest of this year, we're probably in reasonably good shape. And by that time, we'll have some clarity on the battlefield, too, with the Ukrainians probably recapturing some portions of their territory. On the note of the West's role here, 
I wonder if you can kind of outline for our audience what aid the West has already delivered, what aid has been committed, and what more can or should be done. In other words, you know, the U.S. has committed $40 billion, but obviously the vast majority of that has not actually gone out. The Germans have started committing to various weapon systems, but some have gone out, others haven't. So I wonder, yeah, if you can kind of outline sort of the commitments, the actual deliveries, and any changes that you think should occur. So let's remember where we started. We started with javelins and stingers. These are tactical anti-armor systems, tactical air defense systems with limited range. The artificial obstacle was offensive weapons. We blew past that. It was heavy weapons. We blew past that. The Ukrainians started getting heavy cannons. They started to get Soviet-era tanks and armored personnel carriers. We've blown past that. We've also blown past providing them with more capable Western systems. These long-range rocket systems, these HIMARS that have been written about a fair bit now, we've blown past that. We've also blown past air defense, Western air defense, these NASAM systems that will be going in. They're not there yet, but will be going in are very capable, medium and long-range air defense. The problem is that the one thing that we haven't managed to, to get past is air power, getting the Ukrainians manned and unmanned aircraft. Unmanned would be these much more capable Western drones like the Gray Eagles that I've been talking about for you know months now. Uh, that might be on the cusp of the West kind of approving that at a point where, frankly, they're less relevant than they would have been at the beginning of the war because the Russians are now more effectively knocking out drones and Western air power. And that's not even kind of a topic of discussion. So we still need to break the mental block on air power. The other thing we need to do is need to break the mental block on providing sufficient equipment to them. Right now, it's tiny little bits of equipment, metering in small amounts of equipment just in time, just to kind of like to arrest major Russian gains or something of that nature, instead of arming the Ukrainians with what they need to win. The rhetoric is we want to arm the Ukrainians to win, to deliver a strategic defeat to Russia. We're not doing that. And I think part of this is a deep apprehension about what a Russian loss means. That's the thing that kind of really gets me, right? This divide between the rhetoric of we will do what it takes versus the actions of, well, quite frankly, not quite doing what it takes, right? Giving just enough for them to survive, not quite enough to win. And as we come to a close here, I, I want to delve into that just a bit, you know, to that mentality of what a loss in Ukraine means for Russia and why we appear to, on the face of it, be willing to say that that's our strategic goal. And, you know, quite frankly, Secretary Austin went further than that, right? I mean, he said that our strategic goal was not just a Russian loss in Ukraine, it was to degrade Russia's capacity to wage conflicts of this nature in the future. I mean, that's a pretty, yeah. that's a pretty aggressive thing to say. And so, right. you know, I wonder if you can outline why you think there is such a rhetorical divide, or rather a divide between the rhetoric and the action on the ground. And, you know, what do you think a loss for Russia in Ukraine would actually mean for the world? So, I mean, my last piece in Foreign Affairs kind of laid out the case. It, everything from, you know, this perspective, this academic perspective of Ukraine and Russia both need to feel vulnerable and weak in order for negotiations to unfold. It's kind of a pretty ridiculous premise because Russia still has maximalist objectives for Ukraine, 
Russia still believes in Russian exceptionalism. So any weakness or vulnerability on the part of Ukraine will be exploited. Then the other part of this is what happens if Russia does lose? The instability creates, this is a fear, misplaced fear, that the instability it creates jeopardizes the Putin regime and that we don't know what follows Putin. Maybe it's somebody worse. Or that if it's somebody worse, or the Kremlin is not able to maintain its hold over the entirety of this massive Russian empire, that you have a fractured state, you have potentially loose nuke scenarios. I've got another piece that should be out with foreign affairs next week. This goes into this legacy of thinking about Russia as a country too nuclear or too big to fail. And that Russia and Russian interests, even in this war that is designed to break the international system, Russian interests trump other interests, Ukraine or even you know more distant interests of uh, preserving democracy and the strength of democracy. And the research I did for my dissertation kind of looks at this collapse of the Soviet Union and the fact that the U.S. government put together a group to take a look at what that meant. And they latched on to uh, Russia that potentially fractures. There's a lot of civil war, uh, nuclear proliferation, multiple new nuclear states emerging, or a loose nuke scenario. And that is still the kind of, even 30 years on, that's the kind of thinking that seems to frighten elements of this administration. And I think it's a misplaced notion because just like in 1991, we didn't control, even though we put all our efforts towards preserving uh, Gorbachev in power, preserving the Soviet Union, we didn't control those outcomes. It was a lot of internal factors that resulted in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Just like now, if Russia fails, it's not because we're a central factor. It's because they waded into a disastrous war in Ukraine and it indicated a deep rot within Russia. Those factors are much, much more important than arming the Ukrainians with a few more weapon systems so they could defend themselves. So to me, it's a simple calculation. We could either do the things that are within our power, support Ukraine, help Ukraine defend its democracy. That's what I think is an affirmative pro-national security policy. Or we could do something that's harmful to U.S. interests, which is kind of sit out on the sidelines, meter in aid at a trickle, and hope for the best, that somehow Ukraine doesn't win too badly, that Russia doesn't lose too badly, and that Russia doesn't collapse under its own rot. The two arguments that I think you highlighted here, which I just find so easy to refute just by looking at the historical evidence, is the first that Putin, you know, that there's some escalations that, you know, would essentially push Putin to launch a nuke. And the fact of the matter is, how many things have we already blown past? To your point, which we were concerned about as escalations, and of course, Putin did not launch a nuke because he doesn't want to die and he does not want to lose his control on power. So, you know, he ostensibly launched this war in Ukraine in order to oppose NATO in order to fight back NATO on Russia's borders, right? That was his ostensible aim. That's what he claimed. And now, you know, with Finland and Sweden on the cusp of joining NATO, and therefore NATO's border with Russia more than doubling, Putin has said, oh, you know, never mind. I'm actually okay with it now. Yeah. You know, and then the other piece here, which is this argument that, oh, well, what comes after Putin might be worse. What could be worse? <laughs> you know, at this point, the devil we know is pretty damn bad. There are potential worse actors, but, you know, they also don't want to die or kill off their family. I think, frankly, we might have to hold some of this for a future conversation. Yes. With that being said, Alex, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to the next time. Thank you, Alex. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here. 
brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.